politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, property, and all that matters. If that is your goal, actual substance and outcomes over talking points, well, this is probably your only place to go here at Blaze Media. See our podcast, your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here for June 7th. It is a Wednesday and we got a lot to talk about, as always. You know, one of the things that I always strive for, as I say often, is not to be a thumbsucker, an outsider that just wants to muse, pontificate, propagate, uh, commentate as an end to itself and not get on the playing field. And one of those things is even when I'm proven right, and I say something's a mistake and we get betrayed and Republicans betray us and do it anyway— well, look, I could give up or I can come back the next day and say, all right, well, you screwed up this opportunity, but here's another one. Every day, there is a sunset, there is a sunrise. God provides us with opportunities to do the right thing. And, and in politics, that takes the form of leverage points, budget bills, um, different events in the news that you could harness on issues that really are 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20 in our favor and say, we will not back down until this and this happens, and you build your case for it in anticipation of that leverage point, and you hope for the best and pray for the best, and that's all you can do. And that's what we're going to do here. Now that we were screwed on the debt ceiling fight, well, we got about, you know, throughout the summer, a little bit more than three and a half months left until the budget deadline for fiscal year 2024, everything that our government is doing to us on culture, on economy, on our life, liberty, and property, it comes down to funding of this government. This is an opportunity. Nothing about what was done legally during the debt ceiling necessarily screws up this leverage. Now, politically, they're signaling that they want to incorporate the debt ceiling deal into the budget bills, it doesn't have to be that way. And it's time that conservative media finally focus on what matters. We cannot wait until 2025 for a reckoning. We need, like we said, this point of a reckoning. We hoped the debt ceiling would be that reckoning, but of course it wasn't. Now we have to make the budget bills be that reckoning. So I want to talk about what that reckoning needs to encompass and how we push that leverage First, our sponsor today, our first sponsor is our friends at Better Spectacles. You know, too often when people get eyeglasses, they focus on uh, the style of the frames, the style of the lenses, the aesthetics, and frankly, I don't like the new looks, these massive glasses like they're from the 1970s. But typically, the functionality becomes secondary, but that should be the primary objective. Because your brain actually thinks with, with, with your eyes. Um, even if a store offers expensive name brand lenses, they're often a decade behind the technology from Rodenstock lenses provided to you by our friends at Better Spectacles, America's only conservative eyewear company. Uh, they design their business around the bet that people want to see with the best visual experience possible and you know, look good with high-quality, well-engineered frames. 
So many of my listeners have purchased these glasses like I have and my wife as well, my oldest son. They have the best glasses that they've ever had. Most people are are unhappy with the way they see, not after getting the biometric intelligence glasses from Better Spectacles today. Um, It's a use of artificial intelligence for the good. Uh, There are good uses for it, believe it or not, and they're changing lives daily. So if you want to get the best pair of eyewear you've ever had, go now to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule a teleoptical appointment. You don't have to leave your home. You get 61% off on your eyewear today. So again, that's betterspectacles.com slash conservative. So folks... Yesterday, there was a big news story that, of course, is not cool and soap opera-like to my colleagues, but nonetheless, it was the most important story of the day. Uh, Conservatives in the House, a group of 11 Freedom Caucus members, took down a rule for the first time since 2002. So we're, we're, we're dating back 21 years where they successfully prosecuted this rebellion against Kevin McCarthy. Uh, We had Congressman Dan Bishop, who was one of the 11 on last week, and he warned there would be a reckoning, and it's beginning. And, you know, one of the things we noticed from the speaker's fight in January, that it was the first time we ever had an organization, a cohesive organization of conservatives willing to fight back, willing to take the slings and arrows, willing to use leverage, and coordinate properly without leaking it to the press and even allies, because I was unaware of this, which tells you it was a very uh, well-done, well-orchestrated rebellion. And first, we'll talk about the rebellion and then the significance of it going forward where it needs to be channeled. So the actual rebellion, um, basically, in order to vote on any piece of legislation, you don't just vote on the bill, you vote to adopt a a rule in the form of a resolution uh, governing the debate surrounding that actual bill. And sometimes they'll have a rule governing several bills for that day or, or that week worth of legislation. In this case, it was several bills. And the way it typically works is that the rule is kind of an affirmation of the majority party's control of that chamber. So in other words, Typically, the De- in this case with the Republicans in control, the Democrats will always vote against the rule. Even if sometimes some of them plan to vote for the bill, they'll vote against the rule. And certainly in this case, they were going to vote against the bill because it was the underlying bill was either the Reins Act, um, regulatory reform, or uh, a pair of bills that would ban those restrictions on gas-powered stoves, H.R. 1615, H.R. 1640, as well as, again, the regulatory reform was H.R. 277 and 288. And what that would do is, so so the Democrats vote against it, and Republicans, even, even if Republicans uh, who are members of the majority party don't like the underlying bill, they always vote for the rule to at least bring it to the floor. And not doing so is considered a full-scale rebellion against your own leadership and undermining their authority uh, as you know, leadership controlling the majority. So in other words, the the unspoken rule over the years, and it's almost never broken again, not since 2002, is that you might not like the bill and you vote against the bill, but you won't block the ability to bring it to the floor. So that is that sort of um, 
you know, it's not exactly like this, but kind of like the procedural votes you have in the Senate to consider a bill a little bit similar that if you want to take it down, this is where you have more leverage. Now, you've had here and there um, a handful of Republicans or conservatives vote against a rule on a bill they don't like. Um, but typically, they don't have enough to take it down. Now, in this Congress, Republicans only have a five-seat majority. So if every Democrat votes against the rule, you you just get five Republicans to, to vote with the Democrats, and boom, you take it down. So this actually happened last week during the debt ceiling adultery bill. Actually, 29 Freedom Caucus members did vote against the rule. But remember, the bill was so... Uh, favorable to the Democrats that Hakeem Jeffries had no problem breaking precedent and actually voting yes, supplying McCarthy with the votes he needed, 40-something Democrats voted for the rule. Now, this time it was a little different because this time the bill itself is fine. In fact, we we all support the RAINS Act and uh, barring the Biden administration from banning gas-powered stoves. So this was a case where the Freedom Caucus guys knew that Democrats would definitely vote no, and they shocked leadership, and this is the first time they've ever done this. Not only did they succeed, but they did it on a bill that really we support, and they voted no on the rule. Eleven of them voted no, which was enough to take it down, and it failed, and they had to pull it from the floor, and we'll see what happens today momentarily. I'm watching the floor as I'm talking but they, they haven't uh, convened yet. So it was Andy Biggs, Dan Bishop, Lauren Boebert, Ken Buck, Tim Burchett, Eli Crane, Matt Gates, Bob Good, Ralph Norman, Matt Rosendale, and Chip Roy, mainly from the original rebellion, but you have people in there like Ken Buck who did not join the speaker's fight. So that is important that we are picking off some new people. So obviously the messaging is this. You guys want to bring our most important bills to the floor with Democrat support, all right, well, then we'll vote with the Democrats to take down a rule on your bill. Now, to be clear, obviously, everyone supports these underlying bills, but I think part of the, you know, subtle messaging here, too, in general, they're just going to hold everything hostage in order to uh, get McCarthy back on track but I think there was something significant about these bills because the GOP is going is, is playing the typical bait and switch. You have certain leverage points, the budget bills, the debt ceiling bills, to force change or at least some of the changes that you want. So what, what McCarthy did was he screwed our leverage on, on this, uh, the Reigns Act and the Green New Deal. And then now, oh, okay, now we're going to pass, you know, Reigns Act. Now we're going to pass, you know, repeal of some of the green energy stuff. But that's bull because they know they only have control of the House and they know it won't pass the Senate, it won't be signed into laws. So so this is the typical thing, as we talked about yesterday from the New York Times article, Republicans want to continue this game of allowing the Democrats to have the substance on the important bills and for us to get the talking points. That's what... Trump is all about. That's what the GOP establishment is all about. That's what they have been about. That's what conservative talk radio is about. And no, we want to force a substantive fight. We are in a fight for our lives. We cannot wait another few years to deal with 
the assault on our life, liberty, property, the green energy stuff, illegal migration, the biomedical security state, the trannyism, all that stuff, it needs to be dealt with right now. The political persecution that needs to be dealt with now in a substantive way. So no, you're not going to screw us on the bill that matters and then dangle in front of us a a little standalone bill that you know won't go anywhere. I I have no problem with messaging bills if you fight for at least some portion of them on the must-pass bills. But to do that, screw it. So that's kind of the background in case some of you are confused. You know, why are conservatives opposing the rule on a bill that where the underlying bill is good? That's why. That's why they did it there. Now, how long this is going to go on, honestly, I don't know. They're very mum, which is a good thing. That shows a lot of discipline. But to me, the way this needs to be channeled is the message needs to be conveyed to Kevin McCarthy that we will continue to obstruct so long as you don't make commitments to us that you're going to reset the debt ceiling deal And go back to the drawing board on the budget bills. And I want to explain what that means. But first, the next segment is sponsored by our friends at Birch Gold Group. Um, (laughs) Look, folks, on the first day of the debt ceiling uh, increase, I believe Janet Yellen at Treasury just serviced, um, forgetting the number, it's like something like $351 billion in one day. They're just gobbling it up. Uh, That's got to be... Yeah, I think it is actually a record, the most um, debt issued in one day in American history. So the dollar is going to go to hell. Interest rates are going to continue to go up. Um, so you're going to have a recession. We're going to have this quasi-stagflation. Now is the time to diversify with gold. Why Birch? Because Birch specializes particularly in converting your IRA or 401k into uh, not the stock market, but into something of value, precious metals that's stored for you in an actual account. If you want what I did, text Daniel to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold today, and then you'll have a number there to call someone up. Um, very knowledgeable, like Ron Paul sort of economist. Uh, it's not just some customer service guy. These guys are very smart. They have an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, countless five-star reviews. So again, don't put your money in the stock market casino or at least diversify to some extent um, with precious metals. Always a good bet for diversification, certainly um, in the era of the debt hell we're about to enter. So text Daniel to 989898 today. So yeah, I mean, the debt is immutable in terms of the fact that they gave... Biden an unlimited amount of debt suspension that he will never have to come to Congress for the remainder of his term for a debt limit. That is true. And it was horrible. But I want to make something very clear. There is nothing about that bill that legally and officially commits McCarthy and Republicans in the House to abiding by the spending levels in that bill. You say, well, Daniel, wasn't it passed? Yeah, it was passed. Now, a lot of the things are side agreements, but even the things that were passed in there, it doesn't self-execute the budget. In other words, it just says, for now, we're adopting these top-line budget levels. 
But at the end of the day, you have to pass an individual appropriation bill to fund the individual accounts of the agencies and departments and programs. So at the end of the day, we still have leverage. Now, before the bill was passed, I argued that you're weakening your leverage because you're agreeing to certain things that we shouldn't have agreed upon. But we should say that's McCarthy. That wasn't us. We didn't agree to that. And they need to begin passing throughout the summer that each of the 12 individual appropriation bills that completely reset the baseline. This needs to be the agreement from McCarthy. You already gave him the debt ceiling. Don't screw us with the budget bills. This needs to be the goal now. To limit the destruction, the sabotage of our leverage to only the point of the debt limit bill, not the budget bills. And I want to explain a little bit what needs to be done. But until then, they need to commit to blocking any new bill saying we're going to shut down the floor until we get locked in in agreement from McCarthy. And not that he's going to do what he did with the debt limit, which is pass some, you know, halfway decent House pass appropriation bills and then have no intention of standing behind them in substance other than getting some sort of talking point in the final bill that will be an omnibus bill, whether it's in September or December. Instead, what needs to happen is this. So he has to commit to standing behind them. Because I just want to say this, just to set the table. The fundamental leverage point that was there in the debt ceiling that they sabotaged is still there now. And that is House Republicans are the only ones that have the ability to pass a bill out of the chamber. They could pass the appropriation bills, whereas Senate Democrats do not have the votes. They only have 50 uh, seats in a chamber where you need 60. So Republicans have that leverage. Moreover, this should be easier. And the messaging that I would argue the Freedom Caucus needs to go to McCarthy with is this. We know you are maniacally afraid of a debt default cliff, which was a lie, but you bought into it. Fine. But that's over with. There's no default cliff anymore. Okay, that, that's done with. If anything, now you should have more leverage with less fear to go up to the line and through the line on the brinkmanship with the budget. Because now the worst that would happen is a partial government shutdown, which is a joke. And the message needs to be that we lived through a year's worth of a private shutdown of the private economy and even private human life, like going to funerals. So you mean to tell me we're going to be scared of some stupid partial government shutdown of the Fourth Reich? Shut it freaking down. Shut it down. Who cares? Let's shut that stupid thing down. You either pass our bills, we pass them out of the House, pass them through the Senate. Or if you want to suffer a government shutdown, that's fine. Then we'll shut it down permanently. You want it funded at some level? Well, you're going to have to fund it at our levels. Here are the priorities as a starter. I'm just going to mention some of the main things. Obviously, at a, at a micro level, we should load it up with many, many, many things. But number one on the spending levels. Now we need to get more than what we asked for in the House passed debt ceiling bill, the original one. Not a return to FY 2022 levels. 
a return to pre-COVID FY 2019 levels. We went from 4.4 trillion to 6.4 trillion overnight because of COVID in 2022. That needs to be reversed. COVID is over. So the COVID era level of spending should be over. So at a minimum, the the non-defense discretionary spending needs to be reset to pre-COVID, which by the way, at the time was considered astronomically high. And really, we should throw in some of the food stamp, Medicaid, and unemployment, and some other stuff, spending levels should go back to then too. But whatever, that's negotiable. But at a minimum, the non-defense discretionary spending needs to go back to that level. What is so hard to stand before the American people and pass a bill and say COVID is over, it was biblical levels of spending, we're, we're bankrupting ourselves over it, it's indefensible, and stand by that. You want to shut down the government to perpetuate pandemic-level spending when the pandemic is over? You do it. What is so hard about doing? I'll buy, I already agreed. So what? Screw it. That's number one. Number two, well, if the pandemic is over, we need to also eliminate all funding for the COVID vaccines. And, and, and mind you, everything I'm positing here, these are winning issues. The public doesn't want them. All funding for COVID vaccines needs to be terminated. And that includes not just the direct funding to the manufacturer, but to all the funding that the government directly promotes it. And CDC gives funding to all these cultural institutions and medical associations and College of OBGYNs to fund it as well. All COVID funding, again, in at HHS, FDA, needs to be taken off. It is a disgrace that we have not had this reckoning yet that Republicans continue to refuse to touch the COVID shots. Now is the time to have that fight. Done. All COVID policies need to be defunded, period. So that's number two. Number three. Defund all political persecutions. Last year, in that omnibus bill, they gave the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office an extra $212 million. That's a lot of money for a bunch of lawyers um, to engage in more indictments. At a minimum, the messaging needs to be, we are defunding all new January 6th prosecutions. Everyone has been overcharged, overindicted, overconvicted, by a mile, some almost did nothing, that needs to end immediately. It needs to end immediately, period, full stop. Even if you're going to have the existing ones, but certainly any new ones, by definition, anyone who did anything wrong has long since been roped in. You're roping in another 1,000 people that needs to be defunded. Now, I, I will argue of all the issues on my list, this probably will pull, will have the least you know, favorable polling of all of them. And that's because of just Trump's personality kind of sabotages this because it's inextricably tied to him, but it is what it is. This persecution needs to be stopped. You know, I want to actually, now that I'm on that, before we continue with some of the other items, I do want to get into just some of the important news on that. And we'll probably talk about this more with a special guest tomorrow. Um, But first, our final uh, segment here is sponsored by our friends at Patriot Mobile. Um, again, we're, we're supporting 
our only conservative eyewear company, which is Better Spectacles. Patriot Mobile is clearly the only conservative, Christian conservative wireless provider. They offer the same dependable nationwide coverage that on all three major networks. So you get the best possible service in your area without the propaganda pushed by them. Um, when you pay for your monthly you know, uh, service with Patriot Mobile, you're actually funding their they help fund legal defense uh, operations that fund free speech religious freedom uh, sanctity of life and second amendment you get to keep your number you get to keep your phone it is very simple go to patriotmobile.com slash cr or call their 100 percent english speaking u.s-based customer service line at 878 patriot get free activation today with offer code cr um again that's patriotmobile.com slash cr 878 patriot Ask about their coverage guarantee while you're there. So, folks, I don't know if you saw this, but this guy, Daniel Goodwin, he was pushed into the Capitol. He was in the Capitol for 36 seconds. He did nothing there. He was sentenced to 60 days in federal prison. Um, this dirtbag judge, Reggie Walton, cited in part, in part um, <clears throat> his appearance on Tucker's show, which he said contributed to misinformation. They are literally being sentenced based on their political views. This is what needs to be brought out in these budget bills. That you, I mean, a very simple proposition. This is not a right-wing idea. That you should be charged and convicted criminally based on what you did, not on what you believe. This is America. Another big news we saw from Julie Kelly at American Greatness, Ryan Samsel, he was the guy that um, was right next to Ray Epps, part of that first breach. Um, and, and legitimately, he did jostle and you know, have a shoving match with with uh, cops. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't like beat people like the way you saw cops really get maimed by BLM. He had shoving breached, went in, you know, nothing more than that. So, I mean, he did something wrong, but he has been held two and a half years pre-trial. Um, so one of the interesting things is how do you delay a trial like that for two and a half years? It's not scheduled until October, almost three years. So Julie Kelly interviewed him, and he said that um, – so there's a famous picture of Ray Epps whispering into Samsel's ear something, and it was, don't pull, I mean, don't pull back. I've got people. We have to push through. So again, this guy is held pre... Do you, do you understand to be held pre-trial for three years? That's like a capital case. Um, And yet Ray Epps, who was in the same boat, never arrested. And yet... Samsel's trial is being held. Clearly, they don't want the discovery on that, so they're just holding him pre-trial. Obviously, we have the Pelosi video showing um, her staff kind of like, you know, waltzing out of there as if it was pre-planned. Clearly, she knew about it. We have a lot of evidence about that. Um, her son just happened to be there filming it, and uh, there's a lot that ties into the whole Richard Barnett case. Maybe we'll get into tomorrow. So the point is, this is something that cannot wait. Republicans need to act like there's a sense of urgency. 
that we cannot wait. But instead, it's all this cosmetic talking point gar- garbage. Oh, we're going to subpoena this guy, that guy. And by the way, another important thing on the Capitol Police, okay? And this is going to be in the legislative affairs budget. So one of the appropriation bills is to actually fund the legislative branch, Congress. Capitol Hill Police is a police force that works not for the executive branch, but for Congress. They're demanding more funding. House Republicans crafted their annual appropriations bill for the legislative branch of government. And they plan to provide $781 million. That's more than three quarters of a billion for the U.S. Capitol Police, which is $46 million more than their enacted FY2023 levels itself was a whopping 22% increase, you know, because the Democrats have heralded the Capitol Hill police are have become a Gestapo that needs to be burned to the ground. We're going to talk a little bit about that more tomorrow, hopefully with a Capitol Hill police whistleblower. Um, but uh, Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger asked Congress for more funding outside the Capitol. So they have an office in Tampa. They create an office in California. That needs to be completely defunded. They're outside operations. They need to be burnt to the ground. It is truly, truly a disgrace. But um, anyway, that back to our list, that is number three. So to defund all the January 6th stuff, or at least the new stuff, the political persecutions that need to be in there, um, obviously what needs to be in there is barring any surveillance by DHS, you know, agents like HSI or FBI, of any American where there is no probable cause that he committed a crime, and to have a special cause of action for defense attorneys to go after individual members of the executive branch law enforcement agencies. Well, I mean, in the case of Capitol Hill Police, I guess that's legislative branch too. Unless, or, or, or in the case where there is prima facie evidence they're targeting them for their political beliefs, and one of those things is to use comparisons where, where you do, do not find similar cases among BLM or Antifa, that would be a valid motion. Um, certainly as a defense motion, but possibly also a cause of action against individual members. But again, this is the type of thing we need to do. And then there's the big one I wanted to get to. I want to spend some time on here today, which is the Green New Deal. Republicans totally screwed us over on the debt ceiling deal, not getting rid of of the Green New Deal. We cannot wait until 2025 to deal with this massive misallocation of energy resources. You don't understand. I mean, if we don't stop this, the average person will be boxed out of purchasing a car. This, this, um, This entire green energy thing, this electric car hell, needs to be uprooted immediately. Do you know that it's not just more expensive to purchase an an electric vehicle, but actually, this is from the UK Daily Mail, the price of of, of a petrol, petroleum has dropped to around 
144 pounds per liter, meaning it cost 72 pounds to fill up a typical car. As a result, the cost per mile for the electric um, Volkswagen ID3 is 21.43 pounds compared to 13 for their equivalent, Volkswagen's equivalent gas powered car. So almost double. Because obviously they have two policies at the same time. They're making electricity more scarce and, and the electric grid, grid uh, weaker and more tenuous than ever by forcibly putting it through mandates and subsidies on solar and wind rather than gas and coal. So they make it weaker and then they're flooding it with electric vehicle usage. We cannot survive that. That will it's not just that it's going to kill the American automobile which they're doing, but it's also going to destroy our electric grid. I mean, that's game over. This is the sort of thing that we were worried about post 9/11 that the terrorists would do, but instead our own government acts like terrorists. Just like they did with biomedical security. Everything we feared they would do after 9-11. Attack us with bioweapons, our government did this. Attack our electric grid, our government's doing that. I mean, this is really, really bad. And again, these things don't work, and they know that. According to a survey from J.D. Power, 21.5% of EV drivers complained that they were unable to successfully recharge at a public station. Another survey found 25% of the 657 plugs in um, the San Fran Sico area weren't working. Their parts break, information screens freeze, payment systems malfunction, copper thieves steal the cords. See, that's the thing in all these blue areas where they have this stuff. So because of their crime policies and jailbreak, they're stealing this stuff, so it's out of out of operation. And again, they know this. They know this. Of course, 80% of the EV market, all the processing is in China. All the resource. So, by the way, it's it's dirty as hell. The amount of mining you need is much dirtier to create an EV for the environment than it is a you know, normal car. But then at the same time, our government is regulating our own mining out of existence purposely ensuring that China gets all the business because, again, our government is a client state of China. I mean, this stuff is a winning issue. It ropes in the basic cost of living, the standard of living, the energy, the lifeblood of our economy, and China. You can't get a better issue than this. And then, I mean, this is already happening. Jeep maker um, Stellantis already warned that they're going to be sending fewer gas-powered cars to the blue states, to the car dealerships there, because of the mandates that a certain percentage be EVs. And now Biden has that mandate, you know, what is it, 67% EVs by 2032. That needs to be defunded. You cannot wait until 2025. I mean, we're already suffering. We, the car market is completely destroyed by EVs. Our electric grid is being destroyed. And then it's not just the EVs. It's all the other stuff too. The carbon capture, the solar and the wind, it needs to end the carbon capture. We have, because of the subsidies, 
landowners getting screwed over in South Dakota. Now, that could be dealt with at a state level. They won't do it. But the subsidies are at a federal level that needs to end. This is the Obamacare-level fight of our time, which they screwed us on Obamacare, of course. We cannot wait. We've talked a lot about the presidential election. But the bottom line is we cannot wait until 2025. This fight needs to be picked now. Now, now, now. By the way, just um, Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute perfectly summed this up. To match the energy stored in one pound of oil requires 15 pounds of lithium battery, which in turn entails digging up 7,000 pounds of rock and dirt to get the minerals needed. Lithium, graphite, copper, nickel, aluminum, zinc, uh, magnesium, and so on. Thus, fabricating a typical single half-ton EV battery requires mining and processing about 250 tons of materials. For the carbon counters tracking such things, the global mining and minerals sector uses 40% of all industrial energy dominated by oil, coal, and gas, by the way, and that's before we take into consideration the massive expansion that would be required to supply all the battery factories planned for the widespread EV adoption. It is the biggest lie in the world. We cannot wait. This needs to be repealed. Lock, stock, and barrel. And by the way, here's just another great explanation of how they're going to make everything so much more expensive. There's um, an article at the Cowboy State Daily. Why do electricity costs keep going up despite more wind and solar being added to the grid? You know, so basically we've been told over the years, wow, imagine just harnessing natural God-given wind doesn't cost anything. You have sun, you have wind, and you're good to go. Yet the more we put into solar and wind... Um, consumers paid 14.3% more for electricity in 2022 than 2021, and that's going up. In a lot of localities, they paid even more. So they note that uh, they quote this guy from the University of Wyoming, a researcher there, Paul Boniface, levelized cost of electricity tells you the cost of electricity, but only when the power source is generating electricity. Electricity as a product is unique to any other product produced in that it's consumed instantaneously at the moment it's produced. What do we want to happen when we flick a switch on? It's not that we want electricity. It's that we want electricity all the time. When the wind isn't blowing or the sun is not shining, coal-fired and natural gas-fired power plants increase their output to cover the lack of energy from wind and solar farms. Without this dispatchable power available, the lights don't stay on. As more wind and solar farms are built, dispatchable power plants sit idle more often, but they are indispensable because they must be available when they are needed. This means more infrastructure has to be built to back up intermittent solar and wind power. This is the lie that's not put into any of their calculations. To illustrate this, Boniface uses a hypothetical island that requires 100 megawatts of electricity for its consumers. If you build a natural gas-fired plant, it will produce electricity nearly all the time. The same 100 megawatt solar farm, however, will produce power several hours a day, unless it's cloudy, then it's nothing. Maybe a battery power will get you a few more hours, but it's very, very expensive. That still leaves a large portion of the day without any electricity. That means a natural gas plant needs to be ready to go when the batteries 
and Solar Farm are laying an egg. And here's the important point. It's not like just because you're running the natural gas plant less often, you can lay off most of the staff. The incremental cost saving is the cost of operating the, that power plant less when the sun is shining. And he notes, if anything, as we always understood, it makes it worse. It makes it worse. Because you have you have more fixed and maintenance costs than you would have otherwise. Right? Because you have to constantly basically you have you have to have the same level of staff and infrastructure as if you're purveying something 100%, but only do it, let's say, 60-70%. So you're literally paying more just to prop up a scheme. Okay? It's literally like, let's say I'm loading a bunch of, um, I'm at a farm and I'm picking vegetables and I'm loading things and loading the harvest into a tall truck. And I'm like, you know, we want to, I don't know, I have an agenda. I want to teach young kids, eight-year-olds, how to pick vegetables. So I'm going to line up a bunch of eight-year-old kids in front of the trucks to go and dump the vegetables in. Except the kids are too short to reach the thing. So I'm going to have to have the adults pick them up to do it. That's what we're doing with our electric. This is untenable, and they know it. They know it. And by the way, this stuff is horrible, horrible for the environment. The solar, the wind, the turbines and the, um, the solar panels, the degradation and depletion and the, you know, the stuff does not biodegrade. It is really bad. This entire thing is the most destructive thing to our liberty, our lifestyle, our economy, our prosperity, it, I, this thing needs to be repealed. Just like Obamacare. We were like, we, our healthcare system will be destroyed. And indeed, as we learn painfully, it has been. Our electric grid and energy will look like Obamacare if this is not repealed. And, and yeah, I mean, you, you have the carbon capture stuff too. Greg Price, who's the communications director for the Freedom the state Freedom Caucuses, so not just South Dakota, but all of them, he has this uh, substack called Parabellum, When Green Energy Comes for Your Farm. And he talks about, we, we're the only one who's covered this, but the eminent domain, so it turns out that over, over 80 properties have now been hit up with court summons for eminent domain and this carbon so, summit summit carbon solutions is just knocking on their door and they have these big private security armies it's literally out, out of a movie so our government through venture socialism enables private companies that would never be able to subsist on their own in a free market, to come with security and grab your land for Agenda 2030 in the reddest states in America. Oh, by the way, to fund a pipeline 
for, to nowhere to capture carbon, ironically, for ethanol, which itself only got off the ground because of government subsidies and mandates, that in itself degrades our efficiency and energy. Disgusting. It is disgusting that Christy Nome has not called a special session to deal with this. But this is where we are. So anyway, that is why we must repeal the green energy there. What are we up to? That's four, five. No new Ukraine funding, period. This thing is a freaking scam. By the way, we're led to believe they're saying now, oh, it was the Ukrainians who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Dude, the Ukrainians, I don't even know if they have a Navy. The degree of specialty you would need to do that. How in the world did they have a Navy? My buddy Jordan Schachtel has an, a, a funny map. Ukraine is landlocked. They would have had to have somehow gotten around the Russian blockade in the Black Sea, got out to the Mediterranean Sea somehow, went all the way to you know to Gibraltar and then the Atlantic Ocean north to the North Sea and then the Baltic Sea to somehow uh, blow it up. It is the most absurd thing in the world. We know exactly who blew it up. Um, that scam needs to come to an end. The entire Biden corruption nexus works through Ukraine. Number six, obviously the border. This is a very popular issue. Ban funding for all catch and release. Nobody can be released at our border. Done. Period. Okay, that needs to be in the bill. Seven, transgenderism. To defund all promotion of transgenderism, grooming, funding of sex change operation, mandates on the states with Department of Education funding for sports or bathrooms, all of that needs to be taken out. It's Department of Education, but it's really certainly HHS, and it's all over the gambit of government funding. Um, State Department are exporting the filth, the filth that we are exporting to Africa, to the Middle East, to other countries. It is disgusting that America has now become the biggest cultural polluter in the entire world, exporting that trash to cultures that don't want it, don't need it. It's not enough that we've ruined our own. So, I mean, these are some of the things. I mean, I could think of more. Eight, obviously, would be um, the the Department of HUD funding, the AFFH. That is the tool to gerrymander suburbs and mandate a certain amount of low-income housing in the suburbs. That needs to be blocked as well. There are many, many things. We have three and a half months until the budget. We need to build the the actual details of the bills and the messaging behind them. I know they're not going to do it, but I need to lay down that marker anyway to show you the opportunity we have. These are winning issues. It's winning leverage. If anything, you have more leverage, like I said, as a block and tackle when you have control of just the House. Now is the time to do this. You will never get another opportunity. But again, Republicans don't see this sense of urgency. They don't feel it. They don't believe in it. To them, it's just another day in politics. It's like our lives have not changed. It's like these eight or so issues we've mentioned don't exist. It's truly, truly disgusting how pathetic these people are. They refuse to use these leverage points. You know, another one's going to be the farm bill. They need to block all subsidies 
that create monopolies for Chinese subsidiaries and you know monopolies for these big ag places that are doing to our food what we did to healthcare. We need to get rid of all the conservation programs paying farmers not to grow food. We need to ban all the global warming regulations and subsidies in that bill, just, just to name a few things. Food security is a huge, huge issue. Some of the regulations on unpasteurized milk, things like that, need to be dealt with. We need a provision banning mRNA in agriculture. Why don't we have strategic thinkers thinking of this? This is where the fight is at. It's not in two years from now. It's not the presidential election. It's right here, right now. Use the leverage you have. And by the way, speaking of leverage, there's other leverage points I want to talk about. So Democrats technically have very, very tenuous control of the Senate. But there's a tradition called the blue slip with judicial nominees that that um, you could really gum up the works of the majority party if you have members of the minority party from the state where that judicial nominee hails from. So Biden is set Biden nominated two individuals to fill vacancies on the federal district courts in Louisiana. Okay, so Louisiana, you have two senators, Bill Cassidy, an official rhino, and John Kennedy, who's a fraud that has this whole folksy business, but he's really, you know, nothing new. Typical establishment Republican. Conservative media loves him, but he's he's a fraud. So those two dudes are officially Republicans. They could do what's called a blue slip. You refuse to fill out the blue slip where you where you have the home state senator sign off. And that could really gum up the works on these people. One of the nominees is a guy named Brandon Scott for, for this federal district court. Brandon, I'm sorry, Brandon Scott Long. He is a former deputy chief of staff to FBI Director Chris Ray. After everything this FBI has done to violate the spirit on which America was founded, surveilling, persecuting, targeting people for their political beliefs, not just January 6th, across the gambit. And yet these senators already filled out the blue slip. See, this is what it means when you say, you did what? You poisoned the American people. You politically targeted it. You worked with the cartels to open our border. You groomed our people with trannyism. You ruined our economy and inflation and energy with the Green New Deal. We will not cooperate on the debt ceiling. We will not cooperate on the budget, on the reauthorization bills, on the farm bill, and, and, and on something like judicial nominees, the blue slip rule. These are, I'm just giving you examples. When they say we have no power, it's not true. It's truly disgusting. By the way, Biden has now nominated 170 people to judgeships. I mean, it's pretty good for two and a half years. Really remaking it. By the way, 64, just so you know, 64% have are non-white, which is insane when you look at the percentage in the pipeline. Just, you know, um, 
qualified in the profession, 64%. And again, I just want to end with this point. We're almost out of time. We talked a little bit yesterday about judicial supremacism and A, we need to fight judicial supremacism, and at a minimum, when you have power, you need someone who's going to appoint a Clarence Thomas to every Supreme Court, um, appellate court, and district court vacancy, not just, oh, he's not a Democrat. We can't have more Brett Kavanaugh's. Um, To underscore this, I mean, again, the the Biden admin, they are batting a 1,000. There is not a single one of them that is not a pedal-to-the-metal Fourth Reich nutcase. Whereas on our side, we don't have that. So there was another judge, and now this is a Democrat appointee. Yesterday, we talked about how, you know, the one success we had was on some of the tranny issues in the state legislative sessions. Well, federal judge in Florida paused the enforcement of of Florida's ban on on uh, castration. Now, it wasn't across the border; it was only for the plaintiffs, which is really how an injunction should work. There are three of them. Now, it is true that Florida has a lot of very bad federal judges. DeSantis fixed the state courts, but federal obviously has no control over. Um, Most of the time, they are overturned by the 11th Circuit. But I'm just going to tell you, in general, there's been this fight on the right where they're accusing the left of, oh, you're weakening the Supreme Court. You want to weaken their jurisdiction. You want to you know, add more justices. You want to limit their power. I'm like... Bring it on, baby. I I believe we need to shake hands with the left on this. If you think the, the courts have too much power, fine. Nine times out of ten, it will benefit us. And, and, and here's the reason why. Because basically, there's judicial defense, judicial offense. In blue states, we want to play judicial offense, meaning they're passing laws that we feel are unconstitutional, are going to harm us, so we want to take it to court. I will promise you there is no evidence that we ever benefit from that. We, Except for guns. Guns was the only thing, and even then they're gumming up the works with that, passing all these limitations. The blue states do what they want. You need to get out of the blue states by a factor of a million if you want to live freely in the coming years. You're never going to fix that. So you have to move to a red state. So all we can do is go in the red state and hope to pass good legislation, which is a, enough of a struggle. There we're playing judicial defense. They're going to go to the courts and they will invalidate every last thing we want to do. So I am just telling you, I am all for saying, hey, you think we have a permanent majority in the Supreme Court? Fine. Well, let's go up and down the gambit of the federal courts and let's weaken the notion of judicial supremacism, the notion that other branches of government are helpless in pushing back against them. I know this is a little bit terse. You know, at the end of the show, it requires its own, uh, uh, you know, discussion. But I'm just saying judicial supremacism, as we get some of these red states to do more things that we want, increasingly it's going to get in our way while never being there for us in the blue states when we need them. But anyway, folks, a lot of information we covered, a lot of ground. You listen to this show versus others like, whoa, it's a a world of a difference. That's why I need you guys to help grow our algorithm on iTunes. If you haven't, if you could give us a five-star rating with a comment because that helps the algorithm. Um, It also helps us against the trolls. We'd really, really greatly appreciate it. The fight is right here, right now. The leverage is now. Now's when we need to act on substance and outcomes, not just talking points. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you.